if we reach a point that these costs of um, alternative proteins, particularly precision fermented foods, um, do successfully undercut um, the traditional dairy sector or the animal sector, um, then it will just become a no-brainer. Why would we buy um, the old inefficient alternative that is fraught with ethical dilemma when we have a cheaper um, or customizable option now presented to us? Kia ora friends, welcome back to the Vegan Body Coach podcast. That was Dr. Rosie Bosworth. And on today's show, we're going to answer the deep questions around what does the future of our protein look like? I am sure you're well aware of the current state of our climate and the huge obstacles we face as a species if we want to continue to call this place home. Where we source our protein is an incredibly important component of this issue. And in recent years, there have been some pretty exciting new technologies that have the potential to really disrupt our food systems for the better. Some you may have heard of, such as lab or cultivated meat. Others may be new to you, such as precision fermentation. Of course, with any new technology, a healthy level of skepticism is probably warranted. And I, like you, have some big questions around what these products are actually going to look like. Are they really better for the environment? Are they safe? Who will buy them? How does plant meats factor into this whole thing? And are they going to be labeled vegan? There's a lot to cover and I'm stoked we can be having this discussion as it means there are real solutions being put in action right now to an increasingly urgent problem. But before I let Dr. Bosworth jump in on this one, if you're new around here, my name is Jackson Burden. I am a personal trainer, nutritionist, and gym owner here in Auckland, New Zealand. And this show is all about bringing together vegans and plant-focused eaters to provide evidence-based information on training, nutrition, and overall health and uh, well-being. So go ahead and listen to this episode, and then if you like it, be sure to hit the subscribe button so you can keep up to date with all the rest of the episodes for the remainder of Season 3. Okay, so let's do this. This is Episode 44 of the Vegan Body Coach Podcast, and here is Dr. Rosie Bosworth. Okay, so Dr. Rosie Bosworth, I first of all want to welcome you to the show, and um, I want to preface this conversation by just saying... I guess I found you through the Milk documentary, which was came out recently, and I was very interested in what you were saying, and I thought on the spot, I was like, I need to chat to her on the podcast because she'll be fantastic for our listeners, um, because I generally have more of a pessimistic view of humans' existence or future existence on this planet, um, and I'd like to try and change that a little bit and what you were saying on the documentary did give me a little bit of hope as to how we can potentially um further the 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 cause here on our on our planet so um and specifically uh talking around different options in terms of uh protein production and you know a, a, a probably a big issue for a large and growing human population so just giving you that background i'd love to hear uh, kind of how you got into this area and um, I guess, yeah, how did all this start for you? Um, well, first of all, thanks, Jackson, for having me on the show. Um, yeah, a very, you know, it's an interesting question. It's slightly long-winded. How long do we want to be here for? As but, long as you um, like. 
I think I think I guess I need to preface it that I've always been a foodie and into sort of natural health and holistic health and well-being and it seems like a bit of a dichotomy that I talk about food tech because sometimes it goes against the grain of my own philosophies but um so probably my food my food journey started young I was cooking bars about you know with beaters at the kitchen by 18 months with my mum and my obsession for baking and cooking and hosting and doing anything to do with food sort of just rolled on from there but I, I ended up doing university um arts and commerce degree and and getting into the sort of conventional pathway of marketing and I think I was working for a technology company in marketing communications and I was super bored right and I was also this is sort of near um nearly this is 20 years ago and I I was a bit idealistic at the time I was studying and I was an undergrad and I and then I was getting into university and mark of work and marketing and I I was like, this is so underwhelming. This is not what I want to do. I want to sort of change the world as what you sort of want to do when you're 20. And I, um, and I was like, the, you know, the whole topic of sustainability um, was starting to emerge at that time. And I really want, I, I thought, well, with a business lens, how do I merge the two? Um, environmental sustainability, my love for the environment um, with, with business. And it kind of morphed. I sort of went back to university to some postgrad, and it morphed into um, some postgrad work around sustainable technology development. Which I was looking at all sorts of innovation and technologies that could help industries, not necessarily in the food industry, but um, in say um, the transportation industry, the energy industry, construction, aviation, all these different industries. How technology could be utilized or leveraged to create. Um, a paradigm shift in that industry environmentally or sustainably, but while delivering radically better outcomes. Mm. Um, and what happened is there's nothing going on in New Zealand. New Zealand's always a bit sort of behind in, in anything fairly technologically progressive. Um, and so um, there was no supervisors here to help me with that at the time. So um, I looked at the Netherlands and there was a lot of, um, a lot of stuff going on there at the time. So, um, I ended up, um, my, my postgrad research moved into a PhD um, in environmental innovation and sustainable technology development. And what was happening on um, at the time in the Netherlands was that um, I was looking at all of those technologies, but um, all of this, this, this new speak or lexicon of alternative protein um, was starting to emerge too. And I was thinking, what, what the hell is that? Um, what, what does alternative protein mean? Mm. And um, there's all sorts of technology development going on in the Netherlands around um, cell-based, what we call cultivated or lab-grown meat, and, and looking at other plant-based proteins or lab-grown proteins that could replace the need for animals and animal production. And then it, I guess, whetted my appetite, so to speak, for what, what could be done with technology in the food space. So yeah. from there, I came back to New Zealand. There wasn't much to do here. Certainly not in the alternative protein space back right. in 2008, 2009 at right. that time. And I spent a lot of time in the United States um, working with some startups there, um, some think tanks in the States and the UK, one in particular called Rethink X. And um, it was really there that I all of this information and all these 
advancements going on in the space were starting to happen. And I was like, well, what does that mean for New Zealand? What does that mean for the food supply? What does it mean for the humble Kiwi cow? Mm. Um, and mm. so I started to sort of develop a thought leadership position and and um, develop some experience and, and startup expertise in that space. So I then went back um, to I started a startup here at, at the time in plant-based dairy didn't quite get off the ground as we'd like um and i still advise in a number of startups in the future foods space now um particularly around alternative proteins so um and i've done a sort of a, a mishmash of other other jobs and um and startup work in the meantime so that's sort of how it came to be but it was sort of like this divine intervention of of my of, a love affair for food, but also um, how that how that it's intersected with technology and, and my university work. Yeah, yeah, that's a really cool story. I, it's interesting to me that um, even like you were saying, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, like a lot of these technologies were already being looked at and like sort of researched and sort of underway. Whereas at that time in my life, like I didn't even know what. Um, you know, I had no idea about like plant protein or alternative protein or anything. Yeah. I wasn't I wasn't vegan in myself or anything along those lines. So it's so interesting to me that a lot of these things have actually been like, I guess, in the pipeline for a long time. Um, yeah. Do you feel do you feel like in regards to, you know, your shift into kind of the sustainability sector and then going into this technology sector, um, do you feel like a lot of these kind of new technologies and things like that are as a response to like a growing concern about i guess climate and the future and things like that uh, or yeah. do you feel like it's more just driven by um uh by like economy um there's a good question I, I, you could probably divide that into two parts um the early stages of alternative protein and, and when we talk about alternative protein we will talk about it later as well as plant-based proteins that's one form of alternative protein we've also got fermented, precision fermented proteins or lab-grown quote-unquote proteins, mm. um, which we call cultivated meats, um, and other forms of alternative proteins, um, and not to exclude traditional proteins as, um, like tofu or tempeh or whatever as well. They're slightly different. But um, at the initial stages of all this development, particularly with the Impossible Burger, which many of our listeners would um, would understand or know what is now, um, or the Beyond Burger, which is plants, and even um, the, some of the world's first um, lab-grown burger, including um, Upside Foods, which used to be called Memphis Meats and Most Meats, which came out of, which is a spin-out out of, out of the University um, um, of Maastricht, where I was working um, and studying. Um, they were largely due to environmental and ethical concerns. Pat Brown certainly... Um, had Pat Brown, the founder of Impossible Foods, has certainly driven um, his motives are essentially ethically and environmentally driven. Mm. Um, he, he sort of wants to make the cow obsolete to return nature to its natural state as much as it can to um, provide a more ethical way of, of producing food. And, and that, that's the case in Holland, a more environmentally friendly or sustainable way of producing food because they are very environmentally constrained in Holland. So... Um, so at the start, we see this um, big wave coming in, um, probably the last, let's say up until the last couple of years ago, um, when alternative proteins became um, a lot more in vogue and of interest to venture capitalists. Before right. that, it was 
largely sort of esoteric. But now what we see is that there's huge money to be made in alternative proteins, um, particularly by big food, if they can come in and and um, harness this technology in a way that is able to undercut the current system and provide mass market um, solutions for the world. Um, they, they're coming in and looking at it um, I, I would um, like, like you know, we would all like to say that they're coming with an environmental sustainability um, angles, but it's a, it's a money, it's, it's a money opportunity yeah. for them. So, yeah, yeah. capitalism is now entered. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it's it's something that I bring up with friends um, frequently is this idea that a lot of, because, um, you know, a lot of us have come to this sort of pattern of, eating and this lifestyle due to ethical ethical concerns um and this idea that a lot of the the biggest shifts in how we use and exploit animals in history have been uh have developed via just technological advancements like you like instead of using like whale oil for lighting lamps we started to use electricity for yeah. for our light bulbs you know so these massive shifts in technology have actually made certain um, animal use uh, obsolete and so it's not always and it's generally very not frequently the case that uh, any kind of like social justice uh, kind of crews have really made a huge dent I would say and in, in a lot of the the issues around the ethical side is more so that these big technological shifts which is why I'm kind of excited about you know these new options because I believe that it potentially will be a way that we can move more towards yeah relying less on on animals mm. for our for our protein but I did want to I guess maybe to lay the foundation here is just to get your thoughts on like what is like I guess the biggest issue we're facing right now in terms of our food system and like and I guess how do these alternative meats or alternative proteins I should say uh, factor into that kind of discussion. Yeah, I mean, the food system, as you probably know, is is immensely complex. Yeah. Um, everything about the food system, from the growing of seeds right through to the, the raising of crops, to the processing, to the distribution, to everything about food, particularly modern day food, is is highly complex. But if we're talking about the food system, particularly in the context um, of alternative proteins. Um, future foods, then we we are particularly confronted with at the moment their um, the environmental and ethical impacts of of food production, particularly animal production, be that uh, well more and particularly dairy production, but also red meat could be factory farmed poultry, um, pork, or anything. And and what what we look at, what we know to be true, is just how environmentally um, devastating animal farming can be. Even the best type of animal farming, um, there's a huge amount of water use that goes into the production of animals. They require vast incredibly vast amounts of land, um, most of which, if you um, exclude New Zealand from the equation, is, um, is, is given to animals via deforestation, um, particularly in Brazil 
um, large company, um, large countries like that. Um, it, if we're looking at the humble cow, particularly beef production or dairy production, they also emit a lot of greenhouse gases through the methane, through um, farts, burps, all sorts, um, and the energy use of producing um, these animals, and and also then right down to the ethical concerns of the the hundreds of billions of animals that are slaughtered every year for um, for our consumption of meat. But but if we look at the food system issues beyond just protein, you've also got issues with monoculture crops, huge vast amounts of um, deforestation now going on to grow soy soy or other beans or um, grains, pulses to feed animals. Um, you have a huge amount of processed foods going on in our food system now. So we, and that whole lack of transparency around health, um, chemical, pe- huge amount of pesticide uses going into even what we feel is healthy food. So even sort of benign food production is turning, um, is, is going south in terms of a health perspective. And, you know, anything from like just the lack of transparency of our food supply, what's going in it, and the fact that it's dominated by a small amount of highly, highly powerful, very capitalist-driven food cartels, mm. um, Nestle, um, ADM, General Mills in the States, Coke, Pepsi, Tyson, Mondelez of the world, they they own such a huge, such an incredibly large portion of our food supply. Um, and the the cost at the end of the day for them is the bottom line. Mm. So, mm. yeah. So yeah. as I guess a follow-up to that question, because it, it, it seems quite overwhelming when you do talk about these kind of big kind of food cartels that control everything and there's so much money involved and in, in obviously that, you know, leads to a lot of greed and not always the best um, intentions uh, in mind when you're going about producing products for, you know, human consumption. I'm wondering from your perspective, like how much does, I guess, the individual personal choice actually affect kind of food systems um you know like for you know someone like myself who has chosen to eat a certain way like what's your perspective on how much influence that actually has i i think that we underestimate how much influence we have as an individual um for example because there's been a a large consumer shift and interest towards alternative proteins, particularly the Gen Zs, the younger generation and our and the younger millennials. Um, that has since sparked more VC interest. It sparked more um, big food interest to invest in that space or shift their options to at least offer alternatives to, into the market. And so I think what's really important is that we um, – we absolutely opt out of the, you know, the food, the traditional food system as we know it, where we can, in, in instances that it is, we feel it is, it is not right. Be that from an environmental perspective, be that from a processed foods perspective, be that from big food. Are they, are they really, so to speak, reaming the the the, the local food producer or the, the humble consumer? How can we opt out of those cartels? How can we opt out of buying Nestle when we have to? How can we opt out of using the supermarkets in New Zealand when we need to and support our local farmers or or even just a, an independent food chain? Mm. Um, keeping in mind that food's incredibly expensive, so we often don't have that choice. Um, but it's when you start to see one of those key factors of investment or at least movement in the market from a commercial perspective is when the consumers start to shift. So mm. um, if we as a conglomerate of consumers shift, 
then you will start to see some movement. And, and, and I guess New Zealanders, we often feel a little bit powerless. You've seen it with many things in the past. But if we actually all banded together and went, no, there's a different way, we demand a different way, um, I, I do believe that you would get some, uh, some more uh, beneficial change. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, I guess, you know, you do see that the purchasing power of the consumer is pretty strong. And, and just in, in regards to, like, you see more and more of these products appearing on our shelves. And yeah. from my, like, very low-level understanding of, like, uh, food systems, I'm assuming that because the demand is there, they're coming with more products. So it's a case of, like, I'll go out of my way to potentially buy some of these products so that we can maybe – start to get more of them out there and, and start to continue well i guess continue to grow this whole thing but um maybe now we can shift and go okay what are these you mentioned before there were like these kind of two different categories of alternative proteins that we have um i'm assuming there's your plant-based alternative proteins and then there's these other options such as cultivated meat or uh, pre- precision fermentation and i'd love to sort of um cover those and, and go into each one of those and sort of you know flesh out what they actually mean and what they um produce as their products but maybe we can yeah cover off these two different um uh areas of, of alternative proteins well, sure um, and i guess it's important to say before before we talk about these um these technologies, I guess, in a general sense, is that they are very, very new to the market or very new to science or um, research. So some of these sort of sweeping figures we hear about the environmental impact or the potential sustainability benefits are yet to be proven. Um, we still need that; still needs to be tested at a mass scale. And with the, there's, as with any new technology, we have yet to see any unintended consequences of what these technologies even though theoretically they're proven or they could be better, um, they still may have many unintended consequences that we yet um, aren't cognizant of or, or mm. aware of. And we can talk about those after I, I go through them. Yeah. Um, so if we so – did you want me to talk about plant-based proteins or go through uh, – Yeah, well, maybe we can we can start with like what the – I guess what is – determines if it's – or like these different um, – Categories, I guess. Yeah. So I'll start with plant-based protein, but um, plant-based protein, in my opinion, probably won't be the game changer for the food system, for the food industry. But um, I, when I talk about plant-based proteins, I, I'm not talking about tofu or tempeh. I'm talking about a new, uh, a plant-based protein that has novel new technologies that are sort of in, integrated into that food production method. So um, a couple of examples would be the impossible impossible burger that's that's starting it's pretty mainstream now in terms of its the consumer knowledge of what what the impossible burger is maybe not so much in the adoption but what they've done is they've essentially put together um, a whole bunch of different plant proteins it might be potato it might be wheat it might be soy it might be a hot pea pea protein sort of the protein of the day Mm. and they've um, used other ingredients to emulate that experiential um I guess, consumer experience of uh, what a burger would taste like. Um, but they've in, sort of interdispersed into that technology around, well, what's what's amazing point of difference in a nice juicy burger is that it bleeds. So, um, and we can't really get that out of beetroot juice. It kind of just goes all, it's a bit like when you make blueberry muffins, everything goes purple. Um, <laughs> so you, you kind of need some new technology to, um to figure out how how blood works in a cow and try and emulate that into these plant burgers. And, and so they developed um, using fermentation um, 
they developed the hemoglobin, which is the molecule found in meat that makes it bloody and, and has that umami smell when it cooks and it drips out the side of the burger and all sorts of stuff. And they've, they use that inside their burgers to replicate that real experiential feel for the consumer. Um, so that would be a plant protein. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got Beyond Meat, which is a very a sort of similar, but they don't use um, tech in, in the, the blood, so to speak. They do use beetroot. It's a bit more, less, it's, it's less sophisticated, let's say, than the Impossible Burger. And then you've got companies, fantastic companies overseas, like there's a great Chilean company called the Not Co. And they use an entire raft of different proteins in their burgers for burger fuel or um, for big food or for supermarket chains, for, for milk, for um, yogurt production. And it's it's bloody tasty. But what they use is AI, artificial intelligence, and they map out what the sort of mole- at the molecular level, what those proteins look like from the animal. And then they try and map that out with the closest, closest plant molecule and then integrate it into these beautiful plant-based products on wow. the market. So and the not that's called the Notco. They're really going um, strong. They're a Latin American company to start, but they've done a lot of their R&D in the States, and they're fantastic. Amazing. So, so you've got that plant-based protein mm. market, and that could be dairy, it could be meat substitutes, whatever. Um, still, um, even though we talk about plant proteins and it's really trendy at the moment, we're actually not seeing the consumer adoption um, as we'd like, and that's mainly probably due to price and also the experiential factor. I myself, I'm not going to buy it if it tastes like crap, if it yeah. doesn't feel like a normal substitute right now. So, um, and I think that's probably similar to most consumers on the market, mm. especially if it's priced at a higher price point. Mm. So you've got you've got those plant proteins, and then you've got more sophisticated technologies or more novel technologies, I should say, which are not actually which are producing proteins, um, but not out of plants. Um, well. Actually, some are, so I'll, I'll go through them. Um, but that, uh, in essence, they are animal proteins produced without the animal. So we have cellular agriculture, which is one form of um, producing these animal cells without the animal. And that's taking us, say, for I'm going to use really layman's terms here because this is a you know, a mainstream podcast, it's not for scientists. We'll take a a swab of, say, let's say animal cells from um, a cow, um, one that you'd like for a beautiful uh, eye fillet, and you will then um, grow those animal cells, isolate them, grow them in a invite. You'll feed them sugars or lipids or whatever, um, sugars actually, I should say, carbohydrates, to enable those cells to proliferate outside of the animal. Mm. So that's called um, cell-based meat, lab-grown meat, and they're typically grown in big fermentation vats um, and that you can scale the production of that slurry, so to speak, um, quite well. Um, Mm. And at the moment we're having good success with how to produce cultivated or cell-based meats um, at that sort of rudimentary meats state i.e mincemeat you know in burgers or say that nugget you know in the chicken nugget or whatever not less so in those very textured 3d forms mm. that kind of stuff yeah. um so that's 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 using an animal cell to replicate animal cells but feeding them um say sugars or, or whatever an animal cell would normally feed on in the body but bypassing the cow and then what you have um outside of that is well 
beyond that is what we call precision fermentation. And that is um, a very, very interesting form of technology that I believe will probably surpass plant-based proteins and um, cultivated meat, but they will probably inevitably have a whole range of different options on market. Um, and precision fermentation essentially is quite um, it's quite clever in the fact that you can um, you pretty much choose whatever um, molecule you want. And that may not even be an animal cell. Um, I'll use milk for, for example's sake, but it could be a fat, it could be a colouring, it could be collagen, it could be um, insulin, it could be wow. any molecule on the planet. It could be something out of a, a plant. It doesn't necessarily have to be out of an animal. Um, uh, it could be gelatin. And you... you, um, you uh, you, you sequence the DNA of whatever the molecule is that you're wanting to produce. And it's just that's casing from milk or for dairy. And then you take um, a micro a microorganism, for example, the ones that are being used at the moment by companies are yeasts, bacteria, or fungi. Um, and you program that microorganism, let's just call it a bacteria for the moment, um, to express those very same DNA characteristics of that molecule you'd like. You feed it sugars, simple sugars. You feed it a diet that it needs to survive. Everything to grow, even a humble fungus needs feedstock. And in this case, it's a sugar. So we'll feed it some sugars. It could be um, sugar. It could be some sugar byproduct or whatever. And these, um, these microorganisms start to express the very molecules we like. And then... And um, again, um, done fermentation vats a bit like how um, beer is brewed in a brewery right now, and it just starts to proliferate. And you could do that anywhere in the world. You could do that here, legislation um, dependent, um, you know, allowing. You could grow those proteins, say in New Zealand. You could grow them in, in China, right in, in market of the markets that actually need them, that we mm. export them to South America, you could do it in Africa where there's food shortages or whatever. So it's a very distributed food model that so is the cultivated or cell-based meat. Mm. Um, and then you also have um, a really interesting technology that is called um, molecular farming. And it's a bit of a hybrid method where you're producing animal products or, or these very same molecules, but you're producing them inside plants. So you're programming plant cells to produce dairy proteins or dairy fat or um, whatever it is you want. And we actually have a, new, a company called Miruku here in New Zealand that are doing that. Wow. Um, very sophisticated methods. It's a, it's a collab between a New Zealand startup, uh, oh, New Zealanders and Israelis who are very advanced in this space. And they are growing really sophisticated dairy ingredients for the dairy industry that could be used instead of dehydrating um, all these dairy, milk solids in New Zealand um, and and then turning them into milk products like all the baby infant formulas, the yogurts, mm. the creams, or whatever that we or ice creams, you could essentially take them straight from the plants themselves instead of gr growing in a cow, <laughs> impregnating the cow, having the cow to breastfeed, you know, then uh, taking the milk, then dehydrating the solids, 
and then turning it into and then isolating all those different molecules out of the dairy proteins that you want. So that's called Miruku. There's another company in the States, I think called Nobel. They're doing similar things. And the, the, the good thing about that is that you are um, keeping farmers farming. You're, you're still using the land um, and you're still keeping farmers on the farm, but they're doing it in a different way and they're producing sort of these, these new next generation of, of molecules that, that the, the next generation of consumers will um, demand or and at least be interested in. And interestingly, across those, you can tailor them. So it's you can tailor them to have no lactose or you can program them to, to be of a specific, I guess, nutritional out, to have a specific nutritional outcome, which you don't really have a huge amount of um, – options and with with traditional agriculture so um it's really transforming food production from sort of the land animal and the land to actually like let's customize this and having this very precise personalized food production model yeah yeah i mean there there is so much in there and that it all sounds so incredibly exciting and i think i really do i guess agree with what you said at the beginning of that in regards to like you know, I guess a lot of the the plant based protein alternatives we're seeing, um, they're great for people like me, vegans, plant based eaters who are like, cool, want to have some of these, you know, cool little meat alternatives. Um, but that's quite a little, a small little niche community. And sometimes I think, you know, well, what about, you know, all the the people in some small town in New Zealand, like what about all the the people living in Tikawiti, for example? Like, are they going to be going and buying, you know, the yeah. the 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 macro flavored tofu, or they're going to be yeah. buying like their Beyond Meat patties? Probably not. But we're like cell based meats and precision fermentation. These techniques coming in. Why that excites me is because that will give them the exact same product they are already consuming but just wipes out the middleman of the animal, doesn't it? And it, yeah. it sort of takes away all of the process that are involved with raising that animal, like you mentioned, um, actually feeding the animal, the water that goes into the animal, the land use, the um, carbon emissions yeah. from that animal, all of these things, that the transport of the animal, the running the slaughterhouse, all of that stuff, it, it adds up, right? And so – you cut all of that out and you're left with a product that people already love and enjoy, yeah. um, but they don't have to sacrifice, you know, what they enjoy, like just their flavor yeah. or their, their convenience and things like that. But I guess a question for you, Rosie, is how far away do you think we are from some of these products actually hitting the shelf and being, um, I guess, comparable in price so that people – like those who I mentioned who wouldn't be you know, gravitating towards plant-based alternatives would actually pick something up like that as instead of an actual uh, real grown animal. Yeah. Um, I um, probably would divide that into two sort of categories. Yeah. Um, one is um, let's see how far off the market these would be um, for ingredient as an as protein as an ingredient for example milk solids which go into i think new zealand's milk um that gets exported i don't look at you can't quote me on the exact figures but say i you know somewhere upwards of 80 percent of that or at least 80 percent maybe even 90 is sold as milk solids and that's not that's not for liquid milk liquid milk is completely separate that's to go into packaged goods yeah chocolate bars, soup mixes, potato chips, 
Panadols, whatever you name it, it's probably got milk solids in it. And as a um, protein as an ingredient, will be the first one to hit the shelves because consumers are none the wiser as to whether that's a New Zealand milk solid from a free range cow um, or a milk solid that was produced by a precision fermentation. And we, in fact, actually see a company in the States who started to pioneer the precision fermented dairy proteins um, using casein, Perfect Day. Mm. Um, and they are already in a number of products on market, very niche still, and but the prices are probably double that of a, you know, if you bought a, t- a tub of ice cream, there would be double what the tub of ice cream of traditionally produced um, cow's milk would be. Uh, it's lactose-free. It's very sort of customised, and um, it's already in a number of brands. Um, but that that's sort of just the first. This is the beginning of the wave because now they have entered into partnership. But they entered into partnership with Archer Daniels Midlands, a huge food conglomerate, um, some years ago to scale it up so that those costs could come down to reach a comparable level with with, pro, with animal proteins or less. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you'll see with technology over time in any any category throughout any industry, that technology will undercut the cow at some point but, um, but they've also entered into partnerships recently with big companies like Nestle and once you've got those partnerships going on it enables that adoption or at least the cost to come down so much more quickly mm-hmm. and when that happens then the cost will come down and the adoption starts and the scale up starts and it becomes sort of like this just this inevitable shift towards this new system especially for ingredients where consumers don't know or don't care about what is going into their chocolate bar. Mm, Um, So dairy will be the first cab off the rank. We're seeing it on market already. Um, It is continuing to cut. There's so many companies coming out now that are partnering with big food and big tech to do so. So I, um, I, I don't. I couldn't tell you when it's going to become cost comparable, but I'd mm-hmm. say five to ten years, you'll see such a shift towards precision fermented dairy ingredients. It will be quite remarkable. Um, when we look at proteins like a steak or a chicken or a, something more lifelike um, that isn't going into a food group as an ingredient, um, that's where the sophistication, the technology, needs to be a little bit more. Um, ref- Oh, a lot more refined um, because we can precision ferment lots of molecules. But um, let's say we have all the molecules in the world. Oh, look, we've, pres- we've, we've made them all via precision fermentation. Fantastic. We've done it. But there's that last mile of food production in terms of like, how's it going to taste? How's it going to feel? What's the texture? Um, and we haven't quite um, gone from, the slurry of the molecules into the end, the end experience for the consumer yet. Mm. And until, and same with cultivated meat, we haven't got these beautiful succulent, you know, sinewy, but not sinewy is not great for meat, but, um, you know, just lovely beefy meaty cuts. And that technology is going to take a bit longer and it will be a bit more pricey. Um, but you'll have, you'll have, um, a whole plethora of, options to choose from it could be plants it could be your traditional animal protein it could be a hybrid of plant and precision fermented fats or whatever that you want to put in that um so and look the price for that will come down um a company in the state no in israel is doing extremely well i'll, I'll put it i'll give it to you for the show notes it's just the, the company's i think it's redefined meat um 
are already undercutting the cost of lots of these meat products. Um, but again, they haven't scaled for the world. They don't have the kit to produce this at mass scale yet. So who knows actually what the numbers are. Mm. Um but I would say in five to 10 years, the food system, whether we like it or not, whether we're food purists or vegans or we um, want to see this, this is going to come just because it's a technological shift that is now so inevitable that um, it'll be a, a cost in a technological race rather than anything else. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. And do you see... Do you see a point in time where there's ever, I guess, uh, or like you mentioned before, like you make the animal redundant? Do you ever see a point in time where people would still choose to, I guess, have a a like farm slaughtered animal for their protein? I do for the immediate future because we still have boomers living on the planet. We have gen. Um, exes we have older millennials um very old millennials like myself who who might go fuck it i just want a really nice bit of caramelized t-bone steak with some mushrooms and you're going to get that for a while yet especially if your discretionary income enables you to right um what i do see though is that that will become that option will become um um much more rare, um, and especially in the event that the costs, if we reach a point that these costs of um, alternative proteins, particularly precision fermented foods, um, do successfully undercut um, the traditional dairy sector or the animal sector, um, then it will just become a no-brainer. Why would we buy um, the old energy um, the, the inefficient alternative mm. that is fraught with ethical dilemma mm. when we have a cheaper um, or customizable option now presented to us um, in ways that we may enjoy eating even better because we'll have other options to, there'll be so, so many more options on the market because we can produce more than just conventional cows pigs and chickens we can produce anything with this technology right. so um but i do think that that that's that's not going to be like binary one day it's, it's it's you know there and one day it's not it'll be a gradual shift and look we still see the horse and cart but would you bet the economy on, you know, setting up a horse and cart model? No, you wouldn't. So, um, you know, it's it's just that'll be a gradual shift as and when um, social social um, behaviours change on the market. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think, like, I guess from my perspective, the 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 important part of this is scaling it to such a level that you can then provide these very, um, I guess animal product hungry developing nations with their protein you know what i mean yeah. like it's it's not about feeding um all my vegan friends and yeah. be you know what i mean yeah. it's about it's about fueling these these huge nations that are just blowing up in in uh, population and you know and that's and that will make the biggest difference i believe in terms of you know um climate change and effects there and of course the animal welfare side of yeah. the equation as well um what would you say i guess to you know the as as what was mentioned many times in the documentary milked they talk a lot about the um effects on economies right so what would you say 
to I guess specifically to New Zealand's economy in regards to the fact that we export so much animal products how does that affect us how do we kind of navigate that you mentioned before that there's potential for farmers to start pivoting into growing crops in these different um you know different ways to uh you know use these different technologies um how does that look for a country like us it's a great question and and a difficult one to sort of ponder because New Zealand, uh, we, we have a comparative advantage in New Zealand and that is land to grow food. Our competitive advantage is less defined. Um, growing, you know, dairy successfully isn't a competitive advantage. Um, so we need to figure out um, what we can do with our land from a food perspective that it gives us competitive advantage and that that means shifting into much more sophisticated high value forms of food production when we're looking at alternative protein already we've missed the boat um particularly in developing a lot of these new technologies um israel the united states the netherlands um singapore they're, they're really leading edge in this and um it's, it's going to be hard to catch up with them now for that basic new technology that's come on market. But where New Zealand really does excel is that we have fantastic ability to grow highly nutritious food. And um, we have a lot of um, back, we have a lot of background in food nutrition. Um, and that, that could be from dairy nutrition, it could be from the nutrition that's found within our horticultural sector, black currants or um, other, other plant-based crops or fruit and veggies that we could um, harness in this new food, I guess, evolution. So when I think about what we can do as New Zealanders, I, I don't know if it's very feasible for us to go, let's just start and become a me too precision fermented um, plant, uh, no, precision fermented mince company. Well, there's lots of companies doing that now. Where's your point of difference? Right. Um, it could be if you're a farmer, you could go, well, I can't grow, I don't, I don't think it's useful for me to grow cows anymore, but how about I grow the most nutritious, figure out what part of New Zealand I'm in, where, what kind of crops are going to grow best there to provide really highly personalized or nourishing um, horticultural crops that could be um, leveraged for bioactives um, in terms of, um, you know, not only um, food, but bi but plant-based pharmaceutical kind of products. Okay. Um, you see, say, with kawakawa or manuka have all these incredible properties to them. What other plants in New Zealand could be grown that have these incredibly bioactive potent qualities to them that, that enhance health? So that's sort of one angle. Mm. Then you could say, well, we're also very good at dairy nutrition and nutrition and um, how could we transfer that knowledge of our dairy nutrition um, Typically, it's stuck in the universities, though, or, or in big food companies like Fonterra um, or Sinlay or whatnot. How could we transfer that dairy technology and sell that or, or partner with these new technology companies out there, food tech companies that have these technologies, but they haven't cracked the nutrition yet? They haven't cracked how these are going to... Um, impact on the human body when they're consumed are there going to be any unintended consequences how do we make the best highly nutritious alternative pro um, proteins in the world mm. um, why don't we partner up with them and become the sort of wellness providers of 
of that side of the equation. We, we provide the wellness and nutrition to these new alternatives, um, and that can be in the form of IP or science or whatnot, and partner with them in that. That, unfortunately, though, doesn't typically involve a farmer. So um, in those in those respects, uh, do we retire the farming back to the land? Is it forestry? Is it um, is it got getting more into horticulture? And I would say horticulture has huge potential here, especially if we can increase the sophistication of our crops, um, of our plant genetics, and all sorts to grow some next generation highly nutritious crops for 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 the world. So, and there's a market for that because people will pay premiums. But it's not a silver bullet, and I'm not suggesting to any farmers this is the way to do it. Um, and then they go broke doing it. So, you know, <laughs> sort of just a caveat. This is, these are just options. Um, yeah. And I, I do suggest that a lot more farmers get into their, their offspring or then they themselves get into a lot more STEM subject science, technology, engineering, and math so they can understand sort of the end consumer a bit more and, and sort of where they could potentially play in this new farming system that's going to become highly sophisticated. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it sounds incredibly complex and something that's going to, I guess, evolve over the, the coming years as, as, you know, the food systems do change. And, um, it's, it's going to be a tricky time for, you know, people who choose farming as their profession because they're going to have to, I guess, um, stick with the times in, in many mm. ways you know they're going to have mm. to um, really roll with the punches there so that's going to be a really interesting interesting one to i guess see play out um but you know i'm sure you know humans are very adaptable and i'm sure we'll find a way to figure this out um yeah. i i wanted to ask as well rosie like what would you say to people who are very skeptical of all these kind of they, they sound like frankenstein foods you know there's there's all this kind of sci-fi stuff and they say well how can it be good for our health or you know it's 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 just gmos genetically modified you know all of these kind of skepticism around these type of foods how does i guess how do these companies even start addressing um that market and kind of putting people at ease around what they're purchasing uh, that's a really good question and it's a hard one because even myself, look, I, I talk about these technologies, um, but I'm in no way a proponent of technologies that will um, take, o- take over, that eventually have ultimate control over the consumers, um, big tech companies that will, you know, have change their course to food um, and, again, control the consumer. Um, I'm in no way of um, promoting technologies that may have adverse health effects um, mm. on the body, all sorts of stuff like that. So while I talk about it, I'm also very pro-health and um, and very pro-consumer um, autonomy and, uh, and us not being tied to the big brothers or the big cartels of the world for our food supply. It's such a fundamental um, right as a human. But... Um, all I could say on that is that there's going to have to be um, a raft of um, tests um, of proof of evidence, scientific evidence that this food also is um, is good for humans. It doesn't have those unintended impacts um, that it actually absorbs. It's bioavailable, absorbs into the body as naturally as it can, you know, as, as healthily as it can. And I think um, I think that that's where the onus on the consumer is as well, and legislators as before before these are legislated for. Um, 
we need to make sure that the optimal health of the consumer is is put, you know, at the at front of mind. Um, but that's not always the case. Uh, so, um, you know, it's it's a hard one. I think I think even the companies themselves will have to sort of err on the side of caution when they release these products as to how how they eventually will be um, received by by the human body. I think that. Um, that, you know, the, there's the uh, argument that it's the protein is a protein. How your body recognizes it is relevant at molecular level. It's the same protein. It's the same molecule. It'll deal with it. Um, maybe, mm-hmm. but maybe not. So, um, I, you know, I don't know. I'm not a specialist in that area. All I can say is that um, there will have to be a lot of work done with companies on the legislation side, the ethics um, side and the nutritional side of this because um, unless you've got, you know, unless you're just targeting consumers who are replacing the chicken nuggets or their quite unhealthy processed mince patty, people will demand um, that this food is healthy and um, won't have any adverse impacts on them. And until that's sort of shown, um, mm-hmm. there will be that that contingent of sceptics still. So, and I, I, you know... I'm more open to it than some, but I'm still like, okay, um, I want to, I want some good scientific evidence that this is good for me yeah. or even anecdotal evidence by the, by the, the front runners, you know, yeah, like, yeah, totally. <laughs> so who knows? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's going to be a, I mean, yeah, it's, it's one of those things is like, you don't want to kind of solve one problem and, 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 you know, create another one. <laughs> so, uh, Mm. Yeah, I mean, my yeah, I I guess from my very like low understanding of the whole thing is like yeah, like you're mentioning in regards to some of these these products, you know, lab grown meat or precision fermentation. It seems to me that like you know you're just getting something else to grow those cells, but the cells are identical and the the end product is identical to what we would consume anyway. And then like you're saying as well, there's some level of um, we can actually control or um you know create certain foods with specific nutritional properties that maybe we can't do when we are consuming in, in, in a normal natural quote-unquote yeah. animal product um yeah. you know so it's like you could take milk and you could you know add things to it take things away to potentially make it even more beneficial for you for human health so it's quite an exciting area um from the sounds of it Mm, it is it is but like let's let's be um we also just need to keep a very sort of balanced view um technology is both good and bad Mm. so um we need to make sure that that those companies sort of dance that tightrope of it not being um of you know not falling off on the bad side of it where which can be you know be quite nefarious at times particularly if the motives are cost and cost is becoming such an enticing um, or price and cost is becoming such an enticing factor to enter the industry now. So um, it is important that both consumers and legislators um, really hone in on on those new entrepreneurs or food companies that are working in that space. That that that, that that's not lost in these new models. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, I think that's a really good place to sort of wrap this one up. Um, I wanted to ask you. Is there anything we didn't cover today that you think is a really important piece of information that the listeners should know about this whole area of alternative proteins? Um, not, not particularly. Just that it is exploding. We have reached 
record, you know, year-on-year records of investment into the space. Each year there's just exponentially more startups working in the space. There's um, incredible um, partnerships going on between big food and startups. All sorts. So it's 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 not something that's going away. It's it's become very trendy. It's become the the, the place the place to be in if you're sort of in the food tech world. Yeah. And just to to be open minded to it, and um, but also keep health at the forefront. And that if and and to really make that message. And um, you know, if you are to look at these companies or um, give them your time of day, push that push that sort of principle on them or whatever your principles may be health Mm -hmm. or nutrition or um, transparency of production transparency of use of gmos or whatnot um, so that we do get a fully transparent food supply going forward which is fundamental for for humans yeah yeah there's probably one thing um, that i was just reminded of while you're talking there is because we have a lot of um vegans listen to this podcast uh I assume that a lot of them, you know, say some of these products start coming on the market and they say, see them on their shelves, they're probably not going to gravitate towards buying them just because they've been adopting a completely different way of eating for so long and they're very um, happy with that way of eating. They know it's going to be beneficial for their health long term and, um, and you know, it's working for them. Um, however, for those that do decide, hey, look, maybe every now and then I'll dabble in a, you know, a, a piece of beef or whatever it may be yeah. that is, you know, growing in one of these, um, you know, cultivated uh, from one of these cultivated companies, are these products considered or are going to be labelled as vegan, or like how do you how do you sort of work around that uh, situation, considering that they don't technically come from an animal? <laughs> it's, that's a um, an yeah, that's a, a good question because it hasn't yet sort of been decided on. There's lots of debates around that, and it depends. It's really subjective because it depends what your view of veganism is. Is it that your um, food that hasn't involved animal slaughter, or does it mean at the molecular level there's no animals involved, no matter how they were slaughtered or how the food was produced? So there's probably going to have to be a bit more of a universal um, uh, agreement on what is um, vegan, unless Mm. they just use the term animal-free or something like that, Um, contains animal proteins but is animal-free, live animal-free or something like that. Yeah. So, um, and I do know that I think in Israel it was considered, the cell-based meat's considered kosher now, I think. Okay. I'll have to check, double check on that. But, um, look, it hasn't, there's been no hard and fast consensus. And I think that's just, that's it's such a subjective thing. So yes, yes. there will probably need to be some sort of international naming, <laughs> naming convention or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure it will spark debates for a very, very long time. And, um, yeah, like you said, it's subjective. It'll probably be, end up being up to the individual as to, you know, they get the, get the information, you understand where this thing has come from, and then you make a judgment call based on your own morals, your own ethics as to whether you want to consume that or not. Totally, yeah. Yeah. Very good. Hey, well, is there any um, recommendations you have for our listeners going forward, any other further listening, reading, watching that they might want to jump into if they're interested at all in this topic? Um, I do love the website Food Hack. They um, cover all the latest... um, everything going on in the food space. They're sort of one of the first to sort of cover it. Um, they're fantastic. I think um, if you follow a couple of companies such as Perfect Day Foods or Change Foods um, in the United States, Australia company, they do precision fermented dairy. They're really making some inroads in on that. If you cover 
uh, Miruku here in New Zealand or um, or even um, what's the company called um, Upside Foods. You'll see some cool progress going on. But I think, you know, for the first port of call to figure out what's happening in the space, Food Hack and signing up to the Food Hack newsletter, and I have no affiliation with Food Hack whatsoever. Um they great start. It's really bite-sized, interesting, written for the layman, but really cool stuff that they sort of uncover um, on a really regular basis. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll list some of those in the in the show notes and then people can jump on those and have a look. Um, but hey, well, thank you, Dr. Rosie, for coming on, being really insightful. I guess this is a probably a pretty uh, bird's eye view of the topic and and like you said you, you sort of tried to speak in a little bit more layman's terms for our listeners which is great I'm sure they'll appreciate that and I appreciate it as well because it's definitely a, a complex topic that is you know not crazy easy to understand um, but I think with this podcast people can come away with it from you know knowing a little bit more about the the intricacies of it you know where's this stuff coming from why is it needed um, and how it's potentially going to change the food system going forward and then of course like we mentioned they can sort of make up their own mind as to um you know what how they choose to consume those foods so thank you so much for coming on and um yeah all the best Uh, okay friends thanks for sticking around all the way to the end I want to finish this one up by stating that while these products may be a way off from appearing on our shelves and even further away from achieving price parity with current animal products, there will come a time when it's up to each individual to decide where they land on this discussion. Whether you choose to consume such products is a personal decision and one that no one can make for you and one that should be made free from judgment. With the right education around what these products actually are, how they're produced, and what their effects are in the human body, I'm pretty certain you'll be able to make these decisions with a high level of confidence. I guess one thing to keep in mind here, and and something that I did mention during the show, is the impact these products will have on many areas of the world where animal production and consumption is only ever increasing. As Rosie mentioned, the uptake of plant alternatives is not as widespread as we would like to believe. And while there are still potential health concerns associated with filling the shelves with products containing animal products, I do believe that by swapping the current energy inefficient animal farming model for a technologically advanced version using the methods outlined in today's episode, we can begin to see a significant change in emissions and a drastic reduction in animal suffering. It's definitely not a silver bullet, but it's an exciting step. I'll leave you to marinate on this one. As always, if you enjoy the show, share it with a friend and shoot through a quick review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Catch you in the next one, Plant Friends.